We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia.
All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Thursday, everybody. We are almost to the weekend. I hope all of you have had a great week. Another jam-packed night of playoff hoops. They just keep coming, don't they? One after the other. We are going to get into everything from this night of basketball, including getting into a little bit the uh, Brooklyn Nets and Boston Celtics game again from last night uh, a little bit deeper. And then at the end, for you guys who stick around, we are going to get into an updated list of of what I think are the top five contenders in this field. Obviously, a lot has changed as a result of injuries, which is unfortunately just the way things go in the NBA playoffs. And it does have a significant impact on who ends up winning the title. And we will be getting into that list at the end. But let's start with the Warriors and the Nuggets. So if you guys remember after game two, I talked about why I was never in a rush to elevate a player to the status of being considered, you know, those stamped guys at the top of the league, the LeBrons and the Kevin Durants and the Giannis's and the Steph Curry's and those guys who have done it at the highest level time and time again. And for whatever reason, there's always a race to put people there. And the big reason why I am slow to put people on that list is because I understand the process of getting to that point. There's failure in that process. Giannis lost embarrassingly in the bubble. And in the year before, he really, really struggled against Toronto to create his own shot against that crazy defense, especially after Kawhi Leonard switched on to him. There was pain and loss that led to him understanding the total sellout that it takes. You, you have to be willing to give everything on every single possession in order to win a championship. And these guys have been through these moments so many times that they've earned a certain level of confidence in these environments. Steph Curry and Draymond Green have been playing playoff basketball for a really long time. You know what they've done a lot? Gone on the road to game, to a, a, a underdog on the road, Game three, up two games to nothing, with an opportunity to end the series. And they know how those games go. They know that sometimes you're a little, you're a little bit behind in some of the effort areas of the game because you're not as desperate. That's just human nature. It's not something that you're going to blame them for, right? You know that there's going to be runs in the game. Golden State controlled that game throughout, and there were several moments where Denver got back into it by making plays on defense and getting out in transition the way that they do so well. And Steph and Draymond just knew that that was all part of the process, and they knew they would have a chance at the end to make a handful of plays and get out of there with the win. You know, Steph Curry's not close to 100%. He, foot injuries are especially bad. I broke my foot the year before, or the summer before my second season playing in college, and it was a nightmare for me coming back because that's your plant foot. You're planting on it to make every explosive move that you make as a basketball player. And even beyond the healing process, there's like a mental side of it. You have to rebuild confidence in that foot, the trusting it to hold when you take off, right? And that process can be stressful and it, and it does affect you on the court. Steph Curry came back fast. I guarantee you that if this was a regular season and he suffered that same injury in October, November, he probably takes his sweet time to get back on the court. But he had to come back because of the playoffs and the situation that was taking place. He had to do his minutes restriction in the playoffs. 
He had to build up his conditioning in the playoffs. And you saw that affect him, especially tonight. Nikola Jokic is really slow. We're going to get into that here in just a second. There were a couple of plays and drop coverage there in the second quarter where he stayed with Steph. Stayed in front, was just backpedaling, and Steph didn't have that quickness yet to make that move to get by Jokic. But you know what? Steph knew that the game was still there for the taking, and he knew that if he could just do it once, the game would be over. And right there at the end, Warriors up by three. Same exact play they'd been running all night long. Ball screen with Draymond Green at the top of the key, and he just reached down and just once hit the gas and dusted Jokic for a layup. Now they're up by five. Timeout Denver. We go the other way. Where another injured warrior is up against it. I've been talking a lot with Draymond's back injury about how I told you guys I thought it would be about the second round before Draymond really got his legs underneath him to the extent that he was at his peak when he was healthy, right? And Draymond, on a big possession, where Jokic has had a pretty good night. Jokic dug deep himself because he's a very good player and he made a lot of plays tonight and he had a lot of things going. He had some crazy tough shots over the top of Draymond Green. But Draymond knew, we're up five. I just need one stop. I just need to make one play. And he's had Jokic's number all series long. He's had Jokic's number throughout that entire matchup. And Jokic went to spin back, and Draymond does what he did, uh, has been doing to him all series. Beats him to the spin and bumps him off balance. Jokic kind of juggles the ball a little bit. Draymond takes it away, and the game is over. And those two guys, even though they're hurt, even though they're working their way back from injuries, even though they're on the, let's call it the other side of the hill, they had the savvy to make the necessary plays to win the game. I'm not saying that Jokic doesn't have that savvy, and he certainly will. At some point in the next three, four, five years, the pain of all these losses will build up into Jokic as he rounds out and limits his weaknesses to the point where he can have a better impact in moments like that. But that's, the, that's why I always have the utmost respect for these guys who have been there and done that so many times. Because when things get close late, they can tap into that experience and that confidence that the guys beneath them don't have because they just haven't been there enough, even when they have physical limitations. Which takes me to the defensive end of the floor for the guards. Because we watched another team tonight, we're going to get into them later, a Utah Jazz team, that has a really, really, really all-world talent at guard in Donovan Mitchell, who's got good size and good strength, freakish athleticism, a physical tools that vastly out, you know, he's got a significantly better set of physical tools to use than Steph Curry does. But Steph Curry's a significantly, significantly better defensive player. Tonight, Donovan Mitchell was getting absolutely barbecued by Spencer Dinwiddie in just about every isolation situation. Could not keep him in front. It was embarrassing for an athlete of his ability. And Steph Curry has been one of the most underrated defensive guards in the history of the NBA and is consistently brought up as some sort of like detriment to his game, even though he's put in the work. And I want to take you guys back to 2014 in the summer for Team USA. And one of the subplots of that team was Stephen Clay's defense. And they struggled a little bit early in the tournament. And one of the plot points of that specific 
uh, Team USA was would Steph and Clay be able to guard well enough to get minutes on that team? And over the course of that tournament, they developed that that set of habits and that devotion to the work, and it stuck. And what happened the next season? They won 67 games and won an NBA championship. About as big a leap as you could possibly imagine. Now, there was a big part of that. Steve Kerr came in and really revolutionized the Warriors' offense. Mark Jackson had Steph Curry and Clay Thompson on ball a lot more, particularly Steph on ball a lot more. Uh, Steve Kerr was obsessed with passing total number of passes in the game. And he had them moving the ball a lot more and Warriors basketball was born. But a huge part of that was Steph and Clay and them embracing the defensive end of the floor like it was the most important part of their games. And I think you saw an interesting juxtaposition tonight between those guys who are not great athletes at their position and other guys around the league who are great athletes at their position who don't make that same commitment. And I hope that when this warrior Warriors era is over, which who knows when it's going to end with all this young talent that they have, but when this Warriors era is over, I hope that we look back and remember why they were as successful as they were. Really, really impressive win. Uh, uh, really important on a bunch of different levels because Steph Curry did look limited. And getting this series over quickly, buying Steph more time to build up his conditioning and get his legs underneath him before a second round matchup is going to be very important. And so they took care of business tonight. A huge win for the Warriors. We are going to bring my guy Carson on. And he is going to go over the biggest questions of the night, just like we did last night. So we're going to bring Carson on. We'll get started. Yeah, well, Jason, you mentioned just the incredible run that the Warriors have had overall and how that will be remembered. It's obviously being extended here and they continue to kind of roll through the series. Tonight was obviously the tightest game, but they still come out with a win on the road and they're up 3-0. Poole had another uber efficient 27. Clay had 26. Steph had 27. So Draymond was phenomenal defensively. With the level the Warriors are playing right now, should they be the title favorites? So... Interestingly enough, I discovered today, thanks to you guys, that the Warriors are actually the title favorite in Vegas, amazingly enough. But that's the way injuries can change things. So I really start to look down the line at what they, what they bring to the table as a basketball team and whether or not they check all the necessary boxes. Now, there is no perfect basketball team in this field, for the record, even that uh, even that Phoenix Suns team, when they're fully healthy, they don't have the rim-pressuring wing offensively that they can go to that gives them a little bit more reliable offense in late-game situations. They check every single other box extremely well, but even they have some holes. The Warriors have holes, but they also have a ton of strengths. You know, we were, we're going to get uh, the Utah Jazz are going to be uh, punching bags often tonight, as they should. That was an unbelievably embarrassing loss on their home floor. But to me, what happened to the Jazz kind of sets the tone for what the theme of this show is for me. And, and like the way that, you know, this, these kinds of basketball ideologies kind of carry over from series to series around the league because they're just truths about the game of basketball. Just like we were talking about last night's show about how the theme was bigs versus wings, right? And how I'm always going to value wings over big players, right? Well, I, you know, 
there's this obsession in NBA basketball with the stars. So what happens when you watch ESPN and you see on the bottom of the screen, it doesn't say Jazz versus Mavericks coming up next on ESPN or TNT or whatever. It says Donovan Mitchell versus Luka Doncic. It's part of the way the league is marketed, and there's good reason for that. They're obsessed with the stars. But there are these responsibilities that have to be filled on the basketball court that when they aren't filled, it can be absolutely disastrous. It's like in football with the offensive line. I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. And the volume just actually brought on uh, my guy, Vach Lombardi, to do a Dallas Cowboys show, which I'm very, very excited about. But you know what would happen a lot with the Dallas Cowboys? They'd go play a big game in the regular season, maybe you know at home against Green Bay or something. And they'd have Dak Prescott, and they'd have Ezekiel Elliott, and they'd have Amari Cooper, and they'd have everybody healthy, and they'd lose. And a big part of it would be Tyron Smith was unavailable, or Zach Martin was unavailable. Uh, unavailable. These were all-world offensive linemen for the Cowboys. And when two or three of their offensive linemen would be injured, almost everything they tried to do would fall apart. And it's because the unsung heroes of the game of football are the line players on both ends of the floor. You've seen unbelievably good quarterbacks look terrible because a defensive end that they can't block. So line play and who wins that battle in the trenches is a massive indicator of who's going to win a football game in the NFL. And the same thing goes in the NBA with the guys who do the dirty work. It's like... The, the Lakers this year. LeBron James and Anthony Davis played together in 21 games this year. So, I mean, again, that's disastrous compared to the 82 that they should have been available. But in those 21 games, they were bad. They were 11 and 10. That's, I think they might have been 10 and 11. It was one, they were right around 500. I can't remember the number off the top of my head. But the reason why is they didn't have an offensive line. And in this particular season, LeBron James and Anthony Davis didn't feel like being the offensive line themselves. They didn't feel like embracing that dirty work to the extent they did in the 2020 season. And a huge part of why I believe in this Warriors team so much is, yes, they have Steph. Yes, they have Clay, Yes, they have Jordan Poole. But they also have all these guys that are just devoted to that dirty work. Draymond Green... He might as well be an offensive line in and of himself. He's like five players wrapped into one. There's arguably never been a player in this era who brings as much to the table on the margins to help teams win games than Draymond Green does. And that value is... Look at how look at how Draymond Green and his ability to disrupt Jokic completely st strangled any and all chances that Denver had to be competitive in this series. One matchup. One player. Now, if I replace him with Kevon Looney, do Steph and Jordan Poole and Clay Thompson get the job done still? Maybe, probably, actually, because this Denver team is really limited. But Draymond Green, with the singular matchup and his ability to disrupt Nikola Jokic, turned this into what's probably going to be a sweep. That's the type of value that Draymond brings to the table. And then you go down the roster, and there's a ton of guys like that. You've got... You've got guys like Andrew Wiggins who are devoted to the defensive end. Gary Payton Jr. has been kind of cool for me to see. Gary Payton Jr. and I played together a lot in college against each other. I played against him when he was 
at a prep school called West Wind Prep. And then we were both on the same all-conference team when we played in the Scenic West Athletic Conference up in Utah when we were both in junior college. And then the year after I left, he ended up being player of the year in that conference because he developed into a really, really solid ball handler and passer. And But his original contribution, the reason why he made the all-conference team when I was playing against him in JUCO was what he did on the defensive end of the floor. He was on a team jam-packed with talent at Salt Lake Community College, and his job was to guard the other team's best player. He picked me up full court all game long, was just up in my airspace the entire game. His job was to take me out of the game. That was his value that he brought. And that value, that elite skill of his, he has now taken it into the NBA and carved a niche in this league. He's an offensive lineman, just like I was talking about earlier. And I, I just have the utmost respect for those guys. But the Stefan Poole thing, because the biggest weakness with this particular team is their lack of a rim pressuring wing. You know, well, I'm not, you know, there's, there's a defensive element of what a, a wing brings to the table, covering ground on defense, helping with rebounding, running the floor in transition. But on offense, it's the ability to throw the ball to a guy with his back to the basket within 10 to 15 feet of the rim and his ability to get a quality shot when it's a physical fist fight of a game and the stuff that the guards are doing aren't working or the jump shots aren't falling. And that is a weakness. But Jordan Poole and his rise into such a dominant offensive guard adds a little bit extra firepower to that front that kind of compensates for that a little bit. So the question is, do I think the Warriors can win the title? Should they be the favorite? I still say no, because their biggest, their biggest specific weakness right now is interior uh, size, right? Draymond can handle Jokic, but what if they run into a, uh, a, you know, a different type of matchup where, because Jokic right now is too slow to take advantage of, of, of foot speed with Draymond? What if they run into someone like Joel Embiid or if they run into someone like DeAndre Ayton or other matchups down the line that could be a problem? I still lean towards Boston as a team that has a fewer weaknesses and fewer holes, but I would absolutely say Golden State in light of the Devin Booker injury is the favorite in the West. Yeah, and it's interesting in terms of betting odds. I mean, right now on FanDuel, it's not just the Warriors. It's the Warriors by a little bit. They're plus 270. Next is the Celtics at plus 500. I think it's really interesting when you talk about the offensive lineman concept and just the plethora of guys who do everything. And obviously, Draymond is the epitome of that, not just on this Warriors team, but in the NBA and has been for more than half a decade. So just looking at sort of the scope of his career, what he's accomplished and who he is right now, how many names do you think you would take? Let's just go in the league right now with this version of Draymond before him if you are trying to construct a title-winning team. Oh, man. So you're talking like not just ranking defensive players. You're talking about like ranking him as a player in the league just as like drafting. Right. But if you so, have the specific goal of winning a title, right? Because obviously there are guys who will have maybe more ceiling raising ability because we saw what Draymond looked like when he had to try to like initiate offense without Steph a couple years ago. It wasn't very pretty. But if you're trying to build that ultimate winning basketball team, where does Draymond go? That's an interesting question because there's there are two factors that that kind of uh, complicate that. One is just how many talented players there are in the league right now. Like, I encourage you guys, if you're ever bored, if you're like sitting on an airplane and you're waiting on the tarmac and you need to kill 15 minutes, just like take your notes out on your phone and try to jot down the top 30 players in the NBA. And you'll be amazed at the guys that won't make your top 20. 
or the guys that will make your top 15. That's how stacked the league is. So that's the one thing that complicates it. The other thing that complicates it is fit. Draymond Green had nine assists in the first half tonight. He is, there's an element that he brings to the game. He does something that I, that I call hunting shooters, which is a very important concept within basketball because rhythm is a thing that, that disrupts any offensive basketball player. And sometimes if you're playing with the wrong group of guys, guys can get out of rhythm when there's not a player on the floor that's conscious about hunting shooters. For example, Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell is a very poor decision maker as a perimeter initiator. He is not aware of the psychology of the other shooters on the floor and the way his decisions and the, the decisions that he makes have an impact on those guys. Because if he gets hunting, if he gets to hunting his own shot, he can actually shoot other guys out of rhythm. What Draymond does is every second that he's on the floor, he's actively hunting shooters. Oh, I haven't gotten Steph a shot in like four possessions. Let's try to get Steph a shot. Okay, Steph's been a rhythm, but Jordan Poole's just standing around. We need to find uh, something for Jordan Poole. Clay Thompson, same kind of concept. He's, he's the best player on that specific team at making sure that all of his shooters are always comfortable and in rhythm. So that's a huge value point. But again, the value that Draymond brings with those guards is different than if you dropped him with like LeBron James in like a heliocentric top of the key type of offense or like a Luka Doncic. That's not to say that Draymond wouldn't be impactful in that system, but those two factors, the, the stacked talent in the league and Draymond's specific basketball fit with Golden State makes it complicated. But right. with the Warriors, you could argue his impact on specifically the ability to win a championship, his impact is easily top 15, top 20 in the league when you factor in all those things that he brings to the table with that specific basketball fit. I think all Draymond discussions are really interesting just because it feels like he is so polarizing in the sense that there are people who attribute so much of his success to situation and fit. And then there are people who just think, well, the guy's a basketball genius. He makes ultimate winning plays on both ends of the floor. I think obviously there is a middle ground. Like he is greatly enabled by the fact that he does have the kind of shooting and creation around him where he doesn't have to try to play any other role because I mean the guy you know scores seven points a game for a reason peak Draymond 2016 Draymond was a little bit different but nevertheless the fundamental aspects of his skill set have always kind of been the same I have to ask you just out of my own curiosity because I love GP2 and I think like even playing 20 minutes a game I think he was like borderline all defense this year because his contributions in those minutes were that great. Is he the best defender who you've ever played against? Or if not, who is? Ooh, that's a good question. He was absolutely unquestionably the best defensive player that I ever played against. Things are complicated. Yeah. Like I I performed well in my games against him, but it was a team effort. Like I had 25 and 11 in a game against him. I had another like 18 and 11 in a game against wow. him, but like it's always a team effort. It's like it, I in in our offensive sets, they would do a lot of switching. Gary Payton would get off of me. I wasn't like a perimeter initiator. I wasn't a guy that was breaking people down off the dribble. I was like a face up big. So I was more of like a turn and face and jab step and I would shoot a lot of threes and things like that. So it, it wasn't a... It it wasn't, it's never as complicated as like the way I play basketball now as like a guard who dribbles and, and, and initiates from the perimeter is very mm -hmm. different from back then. So like nowadays I wouldn't have a chance in hell at scoring against Gary Payton Jr. <laughs> like I just, yeah. the, these, it's just a whole other level, but, um, but yeah, he was easily the best I ever won against. One other note really quick on, on the Draymond thing. You're seeing a couple of different kind of defensive concepts that, that, that are happening around the league. 
look at how spread out Dallas has uh, Utah right now. And the middle of the floor is completely wide open. And as a result, you're seeing so much of like Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie operating with just a shit ton of space around the elbow, beating people off the dribble and getting to their little step-back jump shots. Then you watch like Philly and Milwaukee. And every when they're playing against Chicago and Toronto, the paint is completely clogged because that's the way that they have to be guarded. That's kind of specifically what I'm talking about. Like Draymond's playmaking and his ability in the short roll adds a ton of value in this kind of five-out system where when he's operating in the middle of the floor, he's so good at making those types of reads. It'd be in, I, I guarantee you because Draymond's so great, he would figure it out. But his impact in a system like Philly or, or, or Milwaukee where the teams that are guarding them are packing the paint more, would it would be interesting just to see the way Draymond would play in that kind of setting. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, that is part of the kind of never-ending question with him is how would he look in a variety of different situations, but I don't think that we're going to see it. He seems pretty happy to be a warrior. I got to say, Jason, I love the humility, but we don't need to talk about switching and GP2 getting off you. You dropped 25 on his head. That's the story. And (laughs) they even inflate that number up to 30. Why not? (laughs) Come on. It's an all-defense caliber NBA guy. You had 50 on him. And it no, was light work. All I'm gonna, all <laughs> I'm gonna say is, as I my the, my one liner in all these situations, I have way too much respect for these guys to ever put myself on their level. He's a million times better than me. If he played me tomorrow, I wouldn't be able to get a shot off. That's yeah, where I'm well, it. I'm enhancing the myth. <laughs> I'm saying that you dunked all over him. If anybody ever asks me, all right, let's switch gears here because we had really a pretty unbelievable night of NBA action overall, and a shocking results between the Grizzlies and the Timberwolves. T-Wolves were up 25 with 15 minutes left and they lost the basketball game. Grizzlies now up 2-1 in the series. So what's the biggest story here? Is it an epic Memphis comeback or is it a Minnesota collapse? This was a really, really interesting game and it absolutely was a Minnesota collapse. However, there were some very concerning things from Memphis. When we get to our top five contenders later in the show, you'll notice Memphis is conspicuously missing from that list. And the main reason why is this is their first playoff run where they have some real expectations, where they're expected to make the conference finals. When they play Golden State in the next round, Golden State will be favored. But you know, in theory, based on their regular season success, Memphis was a better team. And so it gets it's it's more complicated than that, right? Now, um, the they've played three games in this postseason run so far as a team that is a favorite in the first round, and they've come out straight up flat in two of the three games. Then they came out flat in the second half after they battled all the way back to make it a game going into halftime in Minnesota. They came out flat in the second half, so. Out of six halves they've played in this postseason run, they've come out really flat and low effort and low energy in three of those halves. And that's a huge problem because I've always talked to you guys about the margin for error in playoff series, how complicated and how difficult it is to win a playoff game. And, you know, in in a playoff series and to win multiple playoff series and to win an NBA championship. 
And you cannot afford to be a sloppy team. We talk about this all the time with the defensive rating, right? When we're tracking teams uh, in their effort night in and night out in the regular season. Memphis seems a little too loose to me. I talked earlier about the pain of losses and how it builds scar tissue that makes you fight and scratch and claw to an extra extent. I thought it was a huge swing factor in the 2012 NBA Finals. The Thunder were favored in that series going into it. A lot of people were picking them. They ran through the Western Conference. The Eastern Conference was considered weaker. Everyone saw the the Heat struggle mightily as to get through the Boston Celtics. There was a lot of there was a lot of hype surrounding that Thunder team. There were like little details. Guys like you know, missed free throw late in the game. And here comes Shane Battier just flying around a box out to get an offensive rebound that makes a key difference in the game. You know, LeBron, because of all the pain and suffering that he had had taken with the losses in the previous years and the way that he fought through that series, that that scar tissue makes it so that you don't come out flat in three out of six halves in your first meaningful playoff run as a team with expectations. And that's that's why these young teams usually don't get it done. And that's why I have Memphis outside of my top five. You can't come out flat like that. Patrick Beverly, this is the star of the star of Memphis is Ja Morant. He's their best player by country mile. Patrick Beverly went at his throat to start that game, and Ja wanted nothing to do with it. Was giving up drives to the basket, was fouling him. Patrick Beverly... Come on, man. Like, I love Patrick Beverly's great role player, very, very important player, a guy that I think has become undervalued around the league because of some slander thrown his way because of all of his antics. But he has no business offensively attacking your superstar and just getting buckets on him in a meaningful playoff game. And so the, Mem- the Memphis thing is a whole other that, that, that their time is coming. They have a lot of talent. They're going to be fine. But there, there, there are issues there with their approach that they have to figure out. There's a there's almost like a, you know, because they're a very confident team. They talk a lot of trash, right? But you'll notice teams that lose in ugly fashion, teams that suffer that scar tissue, there's a lack of that. You notice Milwaukee wasn't talking any trash during last year's playoff run. Why? Because they were humiliated the year before. And they were humiliated the year before that. They lost four games in a row to that Toronto Raptors team, right? They don't, they don't. Ha- they have a, a a respect and a fear, a healthy fear of losing. And Memphis does not have that yet. And as a result, I think it's going to get them beat probably by a team like Golden State. Now, the interesting thing in this game was Minnesota came out and played really, really good basketball. I've been talking a lot this year about their perimeter defense and how good they are at guarding teams and keeping them out of the paint with their perimeter players. And the fact that their interior presence, even though Carl Towns is not a great defender, they defend the paint really well because they defend on the perimeter. They only gave up four points in the paint in that first quarter. They had the game under control. And on nights like these where these games overlap like this, like I have to do an instant reaction show after the last game of the night. So like if a game's over, I'd like to turn it off so that I can get into the next game and try to figure the details out for that particular game. There were two times where I was like, oh, Minnesota has this. A couple more minutes, I'll be able to turn the game off. And then they immediately just gave up a 15-0 run in the first half and then a 21-0 run spanning the third and fourth quarters. And I thought that the devastating factor there, what did I tell you guys in the play, in the playoff preview and in, in all of my Minnesota Timberwolves stuff that I did during the regular season? I told you my biggest fear with them was their decision-making. Can, Carl, uh, can Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo, uh, D'Angelo Russell, can they, can they execute in these environments? Can they make smart decisions? 
And they did extremely well in the play-in game. And then they did extremely well in game one. I thought Anthony Edwards out-executed John Morant. But things kind of came off the rails in the second half of game two. And even though they played well to start game three, at the end, when these runs were happening at the late end second half or end of the second quarter and then end of third, early fourth, it was Anthony Edwards and, and D'Angelo Russell making poor offensive decisions and taking bad shots that led to Memphis getting out in transition and taking that game over. And so that's the issue. That's the part that Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell got to figure out. Like They've got to figure out that in these environments, it's it's less about feeding off the crowd. It's less about you know, it's less about looking out for what your rhythm is, and it's about making quality basketball decisions. Because this series, to me, is about who's got a hold of the rope. They're a lot closer than they than they look. Now, if both teams have a hold of the rope and they're both pulling, Memphis is better, so they're going to win. That's why I picked them to win in five or six games. But what's happening throughout this series is at various points, a team is letting go of the rope entirely. We talked about that with Memphis at the start of those three halves, and then tonight, twice with Minnesota and then in the second half of game two they did it they can't these are young teams that don't understand how hard it is to win these series and they get unfocused and they let go of that rope so the next step for for Minnesota has to be either because I think they're going to lose this series this is a devastating loss I wouldn't be surprised if Memphis won in five now that's how that's how disastrous that collapse was and how that can impact the team mentally coming into this summer the, one of the things for them is the ants growth as a decision maker, but it may be worthwhile trying to find somebody to come in that's a little bit more of an adult in the room, so to speak, that can help put them in positions. I don't know if there's somebody like Rudy, uh, like Ricky Rubio that they could track down. He played in Minnesota in the past. Those are the kind of guys that I would be looking for. Last, last note on this game from tonight, when Minnesota had Memphis in the half court, they really struggled to generate shots. John Murray had a rough night scoring. He did have 10 assists, and a big part of that was his decision-making down the stretch of the game. To his credit, in the two Memphis wins, he's been good making decisions. But Memphis has a problem creating shots in the half court against good defensive teams. As I've talked about, Desmond Bain is a slasher and a shooter, but he's not great at creating his own shot off the dribble. Jaron Jackson Jr. can be a bull in a china shop. And John Morant, the paint is packed on him right now. And so he's not getting easy layups that bolster his offense as well. His best thing that he can do right now is drive into the teeth of the defense and kick out to shooters, which he needs to do. But when you're looking at some of these other contenders on the list, when we're looking at Boston and Golden State and Phoenix and Dallas and Philly, they just have better options to go to in the half court. And so because of that, I think Memphis is almost like they still have a puncher's chance, but I'm just about off Memphis as a team that's capable of winning the title at this point. Can't hear Carson right now, so we're going to move on to our next question. So, the uh, Carl Towns only attempted four shots tonight. It's three for four. Had some defensive moments as a backline help guy, blocking shots off the glass and things of the, of that nature. But this is yet another really, really weird Carl Towns playoff game. And when we look down the list of Carl Towns' playoff performance, this kind of seems to happen more often than not. And so the next question we had was, can Carl Towns be a franchise cornerstone? And, you know, there, 
I even go a step further. Can Carl Towns be one of your two best players on a championship team? Because look at the archetype of a big man as the second best player on a team. We're looking at Anthony Davis, right? Textbook case would be 2020 in the bubble. So in that playoff environment, there were moments where Anthony Davis struggled to create his own shot, particularly in the Miami series. But he has this massive weapon that he can bring to the table, and that's what he does as a defensive player. Anthony Davis is one of the top three or four defensive players in the entire world as a, a basketball. And so when things are not working for you, like tonight, Carl Towns, his guards weren't looking for him enough. Jaron Jackson was stifling him in his isolations. The paint was packed, so there wasn't a lot of great opportunities for him to go to work. And so his offense was kind of removed from the equation. And yes, he made some plays as a backline defender, but he doesn't ha he doesn't make enough impact in that area of the game in order to be effective. And then a huge problem tonight, especially in that second half run, is he's not fast enough to keep up with Memphis when they're going up and down the floor. And so the the thing with Cat, unless he drops some weight and figures out how to be a more dominant defensive player, I'm not sure that he can even be the second best player on a championship team. Now, thankfully, he's already in a number two position here behind Ant. Ant's going to be developing. But that might have to be the way, if there's a pathway for Minnesota to win with Cat or for a team to win with Cat, he's almost better served as like the big man on a team that has two perimeter stars on it. Because I'm not sure that he brings enough to the table from a talent perspective when his offense isn't working to win a championship with some of the flaws that he has. One of the things that I think really stands out is if you just look at Cat's last few games, I mean, today it's eight points on four shots, as you mentioned. Game two, it was 15 on seven shots. In the play-in, obviously he had foul trouble, but it was 11 on three of 11 shooting. So it's not just the lack of production, it's the lack of assertiveness. And when I watch Cat, I mean, I think in terms of skill set, he's one of the most offensively gifted big men like dare I say ever, I mean, his versatility as a scorer, his playmaking is incredibly distinct, I think. But do you look at that lack of assertiveness and think like that's a major issue with him as a player at times? Because it seems to come and go a little bit. So, you know, this is the difference between like a Giannis and a cat mm -hmm. because the paint, the paint is packed. So, like, there's two reasons right. why Carl Towns only took four shots tonight. It's the decision makers looking him off. Like, there were some flat-out atrocious shots from Ant and from D'Lo down the stretch of that game. There was there was a transition three that D'Lo took along the right wing that was contested from about 30 feet that, like, in a pickup game, you'd get yelled at, let alone in, in an NBA playoff game yeah. for a guy who wasn't having a great night, right? So, like, that's part of it. But I think Carl Towns was looking at the paint being packed Jaron Jackson was pressing up on him a little bit and taking away that jump shot, right? And so I think mm -hmm. it was just, I think it was a classic pass passivity thing. It was like, a, I don't think I can score here. There's too much stuff going on in the paint. I'm not getting to my jump shot and I'm not a good enough passer to make people pay on the back end. What am I going to do? Okay, well, I'm just going to set ball screens and pop to the three-point line, right? That was kind of like his approach. Like, what does Giannis do? Giannis is like, oh, there's four bodies in the paint. I'm going to try to run them all over. <laughs> and like, chances right. are they won't call anything. If they do, it'll be a foul on them. Like, uh, you know, I might get one or two offensive fouls a game, but that's part, like there's, there is that, it's like a, uh, it's almost like a, like a, uh, a, a stubbornness, but in a good way. Like uh, I refuse to go down with, uh, I'm not attempting four shots 
in a must-win right. playoff game at home. Like I have to find a way to impact this game offensively, even if I start to like muck things up running into all that traffic. So yeah, I, I'm with you, man. It, it's an aggression issue, but I think I think he's seeing the floor and seeing that he's not having opportunities, and so he's just right. deciding he's just giving up rather than being like, okay, how do I make myself an impact in this game offensively? Right. So you mentioned it with Cat, and obviously you've talked about with Jokic, just sort of some of the defensive liabilities of these star offensive big men. So just philosophically, would you rather have a guy like Cat, who obviously you know can have these monster offensive nights, but like you said, if he isn't, then isn't positively impacting the game defensively in multiple other ways, or a guy like Bam, who isn't that kind of lead offensive option, but is such a weapon defensively, such a cerebral guy? That's an interesting question. I'd take that a step further. Would you rather have Cat or Rudy Gobert? Is another question that mm, I would ask. Sure. Now, so, and that's 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 really really interesting. So, uh, I would still take Cat over Rudy because Rudy is so 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 incredibly useless offensively. But Bam has shown enough of that flash offensively that I would absolutely argue that Bam. Has, is is a better basketball player than Carl Towns and is a more valuable player in this type of setting. You know, a big part of that is like I said, like Carl like Bam Bam is one of the worst mid-range shooters by percentage in the league this year. I know he has that capability, but it's like so Bam can go cold and become a lack of a threat on offense. He's more of like a guy that they almost they almost use him like Jokic, right? Like they see they they'll they'll do like a have him run to the elbow and do all these dribble handoff actions with like Jimmy Butler or with Duncan Robinson or Tyler Harrow. He's kind of like in that Jokic role, high post kind of ball handler. But and so that's the way that he impacts the game offensively. But even if he did nothing else for you on on offense, other than be basically a you know a vertical spacing threat and a guy who can do dribble handoffs at the top of the key, he can be monstrously impactful on the defensive end. Like like a huge problem. It's one of the biggest wrinkles of this upcoming series with Embiid uh, if they close out the Atlanta Hawks, right? So I I would I would absolutely go with a guy like Bam. He's he's like a star offensive tackle, kind of like what we were talking about earlier with mm-hmm. with Draymond Green. All right. Well, you mentioned Gobert in this conversation, and he and the Jazz did fall again tonight. They're down 2-1 to the Mavs. Luka Doncic has not seen the floor. Jalen Brunson has dropped more than 30 in consecutive games. So, I mean, we've explored this question in the past, but what's most to blame for the Jazz's failures? This is why I set this up as the theme of the show. Because... It is that lack of that offensive line for basketball. It is that lack of the guys who are willing to do the dirty work. As is always the case, Rudy Gobert becomes the punching bag on this stuff. And Rudy Gobert is a deserving punching bag on the offensive end of the floor. The uh, the, the dirty little secret is, yes, we talk about Dallas scoring at will, which they did, and we'll get into that in just a second. But another huge part of why Utah is struggling so much in this series is they can't score against Dallas's defense. And Dallas's defense is pretty gimmicky. Now they they compete to an uh, an alarming extent. Like I have so much respect for those guys and their devotion to defense. I talked about that earlier with Stephen Clay. Like you've got Jalen Brunson, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Maxine Kleber on the floor with two good defenders in Reggie Bullock and, and Dorian Finney-Smith, but you've got three average to below average defensive players that are functionally running a very, very, very 
effective playoff defense because of them just caring enough to sit in a stance and keep people in front. And one of the big problems is, is they're running these actions with Rudy Gobert and it'll be Donovan Mitchell or Mike Conley at the top of the key. They'll get a switch and they'll get, you know, Donovan Mitchell onto Maxine Kleber or something like that. But Rudy Gobert is utterly useless attacking that mismatch on the interior. And so you still have the spacing problem of him being on the floor, but clogging things up around the basket, but he can't punish you for putting a smaller defender on him. So that's one of their biggest problems. That is then allowing uh, uh, Dallas to get out and transition and get easy stuff. But on the defensive end of the floor for Utah, it's literally to a T the exact same thing that the Clippers did to them last year. We talked earlier about the concept of the way these different teams are playing defense based on their opponent, right? You've got teams like you know, Milwaukee and Philly, where teams are really crowding the paint because they're more of a brute force physicality offense. But these five out skilled offenses, teams like Golden State, teams like this Dallas Mavericks team, or teams like the Clippers last year, they put you in a really tough predicament because it's all the same defensive principles, right? Like if I have a guy dribbling on the at the, at the top of the key or on the left wing, and there's guys spacing to all the spots on the three-point line, just a classic five out offense. Even if that happens, the principles are the same. The guy helps out of the weak side corner, and then you rotate around. Dallas is doing the same thing for the most part. Utah is running more of a four-out, one-in type of concept, but it's a similar. It's the same defensive principles. Dallas is do. Dallas is helping out of the weak side corner and rotating around. There were a bunch of plays today where when Donovan Donovan Mitchell got going, they would just double Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell would pass. And then you would just see all the, the the Dallas Mavericks defenders just kind of rotate over one spot. And suddenly everyone's guarding somebody again. It's just basic defensive principles. But against Utah, when Jalen Brunson or Spencer Dinwiddie has a straight line drive to the basket, you have Maxine Kleber in the weak side corner, and you have Rudy Gobert step over to help. And that same rotation doesn't happen. And so you literally saw in a must-win game at home. You have to win that game because Luka's out. And in a must-win game at home, they the the uh, the Dallas Mavericks made 13 threes in the first half, I believe on 25 attempts. And guys, like they were all wide open. They're, if you're a Utah Jazz fan, you should not be sitting at home tonight or driving home from that game thinking, man, I can't believe they shot so well. That's really unfortunate. No, no, no. You gave professional basketball players Wide open threes. Maxine Kleber just made like seven or eight of them in game two. What did you think was going to happen if you let him sit butt naked at the three-point line all night long? He's going to make them all game. And he did. I think he made three or four in a row before he finally missed one. And like like pivotal position. It happened time and time again. Big run. They get it back to within 11, early second half. Here comes Maxine Kleber just runs a basic dribble handoff with, with, uh, with Reggie Bullock. Rudy Gobert is the one guarding Reggie Bullock, and he sags off of him. And the guy, I, I think it was Donovan Mitchell that was guarding Kleber, was lazy on the switch, and Reggie Bullock got a wide-open three and knocked it down. They went on a run in the fourth quarter and got it back within seven. Jalen Brunson just walked right down the floor, beat somebody off the dribble, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Mike Conley, and then Rudy Gobert, uh, 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 Rudy Gobert stepped over, and as soon as he did, uh, Josh Green just cut out of the weak side corner. It was an easy drop-off for a layup. They were getting easy baskets. Good playoff defenses, you'll notice, 
they usually only get scored on in two scenarios. They'll get scored on because a super duper star makes an incredibly tough shot over a contest. Or they'll get scored on because they made three or four defensive rotations on the same possession and finally someone got an open shot after it was driving kick and swing and swing and driving kick and swing and swing like three or four times around the floor that before finally somebody misses a rotation. The Utah Jazz were getting beat on the first action. Dribble drive, there's an easy kick out. And the guy that I have to be super critical of here is Donovan Mitchell. I talked about this earlier with Steph Curry. Steph Curry, limited off, uh, limited physical tools relative to the position. He's about six foot three, not overly quick, not overly vertically athletic. He's strong, but he's not like jacked, like Donovan Mitchell's stronger, right? Donovan Mitchell's taller, has like a 40-inch vertical, significantly quicker, significantly quicker laterally. He's got all of the tools to be a, a all-defense player. And Spencer Dinwiddie, who is... In terms of perimeter initiators in this playoff run, he's in the bottom set. He's shooting like crap in this series. Down the stretch of that game, Spencer Dinwiddie was just looking Donovan Mitchell in the face and just driving right around him to the basket almost every time down the floor. It's embarrassing. And one of, you know, <clears throat> the Jazz are an interesting predicament here because they have to rebuild. You know, the series not entirely over, but like they're in trouble because Luka could theoretically sit out game four now because you like your chances. There's absolutely no reason to rush Luka back. You're a better basketball team than the Jazz without Luka. That's the predicament for Utah. And Luka is a top five or six player in the entire world. So they're, they're, they're probably going to lose. And when that happens, they're going to have to decide how they move on from here. And yes, they have a Rudy Gobert problem. He makes too much money to be a player who's useless offensively. Again, his defensive criticism is completely unfair. He does He's one of the top three or four defensive players in the world. And he, even in, in perimeter situations. I did, like Guys are going to make step-back fadeaways against every defensive player in the league, including Rudy Gobert. And a lot of the shots that they would make on Rudy would be like leaning one-like fadeaways in the lane. That's just greatness from offensive players. But his limitations on the offensive end of the floor put you in a tough predicament with how much space he takes up in your cap. And so that's an issue. But a big part of it is Donovan Mitchell. Now, there's intel that he doesn't want to be in Utah long-term, but Donovan Mitchell is never going to be able to be a cornerstone of an NBA title contender until he embraces the defensive end of the floor. And hopefully, going home early again this year will help build up some of that scar tissue to get Donovan Mitchell to start caring enough about that stuff to do the job. Because the dirty little secret is, if Donovan cared about defense and they brought in one more good defensive guard and one more good defensive wing, they might be able to make this core work. But, I mean, there's like a commitment from the top down, a cultural thing that they haven't embraced yet. That's really interesting, that last comment that you made there, because I was going to ask, how complete does this roster overhaul need to be? Because obviously people look at the Donnie Gobert element, but it's... If you have guys who you're paying a combined 40 plus million in like Boyan and Conley who aren't being willing defenders, who aren't being dirty work guys, and you lost really kind of their ultimate dirty work guy in Joe Ingles, it's just yep. kind of remarkable that here they are. They were the most efficient offense in basketball this year, and yet they're getting really embarrassed. I mean, this is an embarrassing performance to be down 2-1 with the Mavs without Luka, but do you still think then that it's more of an issue of identity and 
committing to playing both ends than it is like really personnel? It's both. I mean, like, for instance, like, who who's Dorian Finney-Smith on this roster for the Jazz? You know, like, almost every really, really good playoff team has that guy. It's, you know, right. it's Andrew Wiggins for the Warriors. It's it's Dorian Finney-Smith for the Mavericks. It's, you know, it's Mikhail Bridges for the Suns. All of the really, really mm-hmm. good teams in this field have this do-it-all 6'8 to 6'10 forward that guards the other team's best player and does all this important stuff, right? Like Donovan Mitchell's not having success against Doran Finney-Smith. He has to get him switched off of him. So you could do a soft rebuild, target a guy like Dorian Finney-Smith, and then just hope the hope that eventually Donovan Mitchell will will embrace that defensive end of the floor. But it gets a little deeper than that. Like Donovan Mitchell's also just a really bad decision maker. Like his he doesn't hunt shooters. He's not aware of the of the of the feel of everybody else on the floor. And it kind of seems more like he's just, did I get some airspace? Okay, time to rise up. He's got a little bit of the Russell Westbrook conundrum where he's when he's when Russ was in his prime, I mean, where like he's so incredibly athletic. And teams are so paranoid about him getting downhill to the rim that he kind of can get to a jump shot whenever he wants. And that's a blessing and a curse. It's a talent, but the curse is it's not always a good time to pull up off the dribble to shoot a jump shot because it's not just about your... This is the thing that used to always kill me with James Harden when 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 Daryl Morey would be like, oh, he's averaging 1.22 points per isolation possession. Thus, he is the greatest scorer of all time. And it's like, actually, it doesn't matter what James Harden scores per possession. It matters what your entire team scores per possession in a playoff setting. And Donovan Mitchell might be able to... His analytics team might be able to tell him that his pull-up threes off the dribble are generating one point something points per possession or whatever it is. But the reality is, is the Utah Jazz offense sucks right now. So it goes deeper than just what Donovan can get with his own shot. The entire organism is broken. I would say that there's enough bad juju surrounding this Jazz team that I would go with a total rebuild. It's kind of like with the Lakers. Like With the Lakers, there's a lot of intel like, oh, Carmelo wants to come back. Oh, Dwight wants to come back. It's like, if you bring them back, don't be surprised if there's a similar vibe in the locker room next year. There was clearly something toxic, not personnel related. Those guys all got along, but there was something toxic with the Lakers with their basketball this year. It just wasn't functioning. And the only way to do to you got to clean house. And so that's kind of where I'm at with the Jazz. Like these guys all like each other, uh, except for maybe Rudy and, and Donovan, right? But like, uh, mm-hmm. there's the guys seem to have good chemistry aside from that. But it's just this is a fundamentally broken concoction of basketball players. And so from that standpoint, it's like the recipe is already so screwed up. Don't start adding other ingredients in it to fix it. Just throw out the whole batch and start from scratch. All right. Well, let's move on here to a team that is still kind of trying to figure out that mix of ingredients themselves a little bit. Didn't play today, but we have some thoughts from big boss man Colin Cowherd on some of the fundamental issues with the Nets. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Two years ago, these guys went on a podcast with each other and both were quoted saying, we don't really need a coach. Okay, that's delusional. Here's one thing, all dynasties, football, basketball, and baseball, but let's stay to football, basketball, all dynasties have had in common. One thing, they've all had legendary coaches. Jason, what do you think of that? And what do you really think went wrong with the Nets? So (laughs) the, the Nash thing is complicated because, you know, we got into this a little bit last night, but there are legitimate shortcomings there. Uh, 
Like you shouldn't be able to to disrupt this Brooklyn offense to the extent that they have, that to the extent that Boston has in these last two games. And the chess match here is Nash has to figure that out. Part of me wants to withhold some of the Nash criticism until this series is over because it isn't over. Like there's a pathway here. Like you win game three at home. Starts there. That's one single achievable thing. Beat the Boston Celtics on your home floor. Then game four, here comes Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons gives you a significant defensive weapon, if nothing else. We talked earlier about the concept of the offensive line in basketball and these role players that fill all these dirty work positions. The Nets don't have a lot of that. And KD and Kyrie aren't super, super into that sort of thing. So having a guy like Ben Simmons who does that kind of thing, that's an influx of talent that that helps significantly on that front. If you're turning some of those some of those minutes that are going to a Kessler Edwards into a Ben Simmons, that's a massive, massive upgrade. So there's still a pathway here. So I don't want to get too ahead of like I talked about this last night. The the conundrum with Steve Nash here is not it's not him running offense. It's more actions, specific actions, like two player actions and three player actions in floor positioning to try to take advantage of Boston's over aggressiveness. That's the chess match that Steve Nash has to fix uh, figure out over the next couple of days. As far as KD and Kyrie go, they're not the first guys that are like this. Like there's a reason why LeBron wanted Ty Lue when he was in Cleveland. It was before Ty Ty Lue now is a proven successful coach that rightfully has an ego. He should feel the way that he does. But when he was coming up in Cleveland, I don't want to say he was under LeBron's thumb because he wasn't, but he wasn't the kind of guy like he did he was someone who was critical of LeBron. That was something that was chronicled in detail and that was something that LeBron needed, but it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a true like superior inferior type of relationship. It was very collaborative. And that's the kind of that's the kind of like trigger word here because the clip that Colin is referencing was I, I, I can't I can't remember if it was a podcast or an interview or what it was, but Kyrie and KD were talking about the Nash hire and Kyrie basically says something to the effect of, Yeah, you know, like my relationship with Steve is really cool. It's gonna get deeper as the years go by, but like we don't really need like I could be the head coach one night, Kevin could be the head coach one night, and then like Kevin steps up and he goes, like, Yeah, it's a collaborative effort. And it's like that's the part that's ridiculous. It's the egos of the stars in the room and them thinking I don't need somebody on the sideline that could potentially help me here. And that's that's the issue. That's why I was talking about with the Lakers. It's so important for them to get a head coach this next year that has the cachet to be able to actually talk, not, I don't want to say talk down to these guys, but to talk to them and actually have them listen because they all have massive egos and they think they don't need the help. But I could also say that Kevin and Kyrie are massively undervaluing the importance of the role players. Like, uh, guys, guess what? The you, the Boston Celtics in the second half of this series. So third and fourth quarters of game one, third and fourth quarters of game two. In the second half of this series so far, the Celtics are scoring about 126 points per 100 possessions. That's an insane number. Uh, Brooklyn's defense is utterly falling apart in the second half of these games. That's on uh, part of its coaching, but a big part of it is personnel. The KD and Kyrie are under the impression that like, hey, we're just gonna we're just gonna score because that's what we do best, and we're gonna win. Despite the fact that everything we've ever heard in NBA history tells us that you have to have the ability to lock in in the half court and get stops. They had one decent stretch in the fourth quarter of Game One that they lost 
because of a handful of important defensive breakdowns. Jalen Brown had nine points in the last seven minutes of the game. So even their good defensive fourth quarter had some catastrophic failures in it. They can't sit down and get, they can't get the stops they need to win the series. So clearly there's an ego thing with KD and Kyrie. They don't think they need an elite defense. They don't think they need a guy sitting in the chair that can offer something that helps them. And that's going to perpetually be something that holds back people with pride. It's, LeBron James is the second best basketball player ever in my opinion and has a realistic chance to pass MJ one day. That dude literally looked at the 2020 Lakers and thought, we don't need these role guys. What I really need is another playmaker. And what he didn't realize was they won because they had all of these dudes like Alex Crusoe and Danny Green and Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Kyle Kuzma who were dedicated to doing all the hard things so that LeBron and Anthony Davis could focus on what they were great at. And that kind of like dissonance between those two concepts it's pride is an issue for everybody in the world. And this is the way it affects the star basketball players of the world. So given all those issues, you did still say that there is a path for the nets to get out of this series. And it starts with winning game three. What actually has to happen throughout this series, in your opinion, for the nets to still pull it off? So it's, this is where it comes down to Nash because Boston is is really, really, really aggressive in defense right now against Katie and Kyrie. We broke this down in detail last night. The gist of it is, unless they're dribbling 30 feet from the basket, they're never alone. If they put the ball on the floor and try to beat somebody off the dribble, help is coming early and it's coming aggressively. It's not someone stepping in and digging. They're straight up like aggressively helping. When they want to catch off the ball, as soon as the pass is thrown in, a second defender is coming over to try to disrupt on the catch. They are off the ball getting roughed up. There's Boston is throwing multiple bodies at KD and Kyrie all the time. And as a result of that, there are openings somewhere on the floor. But there's two things that go into that. Part of it is the 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 approach to the game. Like KD and Kyrie are both wired as scorers. And so there are times where they look off open people to try to get to their own shot. There was a big play that I tweeted out in the second half of last night's game. You can find it on my Twitter feed where Kyrie beat, uh, I can't remember who it was that he beat off the dribble, but he beat somebody off the dribble and got into the lane. And Patty Mills, one of the most dead-eye three-point shooters in the league, was completely unguarded at the top of the key. And instead of swinging it out to Patty Mills, Kyrie tried to finish over three people and got blocked. So part of it is embracing and understanding that your role in this series is no longer to score, but rather to be a decoy, essentially. Take advantage of the ridiculous defensive attention that Boston is throwing your way and use that to get your really good offensive players wide open shots. Boston's defense will loosen. Then from there, you can actually go back to being a scorer. And then the second part of it is the Steve Nash role. Little decoy actions. Two-man action off the ball with Katie and Kyrie to occupy defenders. Floor positioning. Making it so that KD knows, if I catch here and Boston doubles there, then I know that so-and-so is open. Dallas is so incredibly good at this. They are the best in the league, in my opinion. The Brunson, Dinwiddie, and Luka, they don't throw to open guys. They throw to spots. Because baked into their offense, they have release valves. They know... No matter what kind of hell trouble I get into, if I find myself in traffic, there's always someone in the left corner. Another big thing you saw tonight, especially in that first half, they have a guy kind of like circle around to the top of the key. 
So they always have a release. So when they attack from the top, they always have a release valve right behind them. Kleber got a couple threes out of that early in the game. Uh, they, they got a ton of open looks right at the uh, right around the top of the key. So that's Steve Nash's job. And uh, I don't know how the heck this happened, but the Nets don't play again tomorrow. So they had two days off between game one and two, and they have two games off again between two and three. They don't play till Saturday. So you've got a lot of time here for Steve Nash to really study the tape and try to come up with really easy counters for each spot in the floor. When they double at KD at the post, this is what we do. When they double, when they trap KD on pick and rolls, this is what we do. When KD attacks in isolation and they start throwing bodies, this is where people relocate. Those are those little details that Nash has to figure out. And for the record, guys, like if we go into game three and the same thing happens, that's when I buy into the, 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 the Steve Nash criticism because that's his job. His job is not to have it figured out by game one. It's his job to make the adjustments. And he, they, they got utterly slapped in the face and completely fell apart offensively in the second half of game two. And it's on Steve Nash to come up with an adjustment to make things easier on Kyrie and KD in game three. All right, well, we've obviously explored a lot of different teams throughout this show, and we've dipped our toes a bit into the who are the top-tier title contenders conversation right now. But I think we're ready, Jason, for the official Tim's top five. So let's start <laughs> with the five spot. Who are your top five contenders right now? Okay, so like I mentioned earlier, I'm dropping Memphis out because I just don't think they're sharp enough, and I don't think they're quite committed enough to just how hard this is going to be. So I'm dropping them out. I've raised Philly up to number five because of, and I was really low on Philly. I expected them to lose in the first round and I was wrong about that. And a big part of it was Joel Embiid's jump shooting. He seems to be hot in that specific department. That is a massive wrinkle because uh, that is their release valve in late possession type situations. And then Tyrese Maxey. Tyrese Maxey was the second best player in this first round series. Obviously, it's not entirely over yet, but he was better than James Harden. He was better than everybody on Toronto. Tyrese Maxey proving himself as an effective playoff player is an influx of talent that makes them more interesting. I don't have them as, as I don't think they're capable of beating Boston. I would still pick Boston, but they're more of a threat, in my opinion, than any of those other teams in the East because of Milwaukee and Chris Middleton getting hurt. That's devastating if he's out for a couple weeks. If they don't lose to Chicago, they absolutely will lose to Boston. They have no chance of beating Boston without Chris Middleton. That's a disastrous outcome there. So you guys know how I feel about Miami. I don't trust their half-court offense enough. So I put Philly at five. Number four, I put Dallas. And this is something that people have to be prepared for. Dallas has a realistic chance to win the title. Phoenix is dealing with, obviously, the Devin Booker injury. Uh, Golden State has some specific flaws, particularly on the wing. Luka is a rim-pressuring wing. He has a size and strength advantage against everybody on the Warriors roster Except obviously he's not going to get matched up with Draymond often. Draymond's going to be in a different role. But the only guy would be Andre Guadala that I would feel comfortable really making Luca uncomfortable. And the issue there is his his neck is he's having neck spasms. He's having a bunch of issues there. So there's question as to whether or not Andre would even be dependable enough at this point at 38 years old to be able to do that to to accomplish that role. I one of my biggest concerns with Dallas all year. Was, what the, was that their defense was kind of gimmicky. They were making up for a lack of personnel with effort and a scheme. And I was worried about whether or not that would transfer to the postseason, and it has. 
I there, there was a there's a clip on my Twitter feed. You guys can see uh, there's a quote tweet and tweet underneath it. There's a tweet of Donovan Mitchell getting barbecued by Spencer Dinwiddie, and then a, a clip of Mike Conley Jr. trying to attack Jalen Brunson off the uh, off the dribble and watch Jalen Brunson's commitment to sliding his feet and how he cuts Mike Conley off on the drive three times in the same possession and forces a travel. And like, even though he's not the same athlete that Donovan Mitchell was, it is clear that this specific defensive scheme, even with this limited personnel, is functional in the playoffs because of how hard they play and because of their commitment to that that job. And so Dallas's defense, in conjunction with what Jalen Brunson is doing right now, and Spencer Dinwiddie as a third release valve, he's had a disaster series in terms of his efficiency as a secondary creator, he will be more efficient in a third role. And Luka Doncic has got, has already shown that he can go toe-to-toe with Kawhi Leonard and be every bit as good as him. So I put they're a real threat. I have them at number four. I have Phoenix at number three. Obviously, I had them as a clear number one before the Devin Booker injury. But without Devin Booker, there's just a new hole that has formed in a team that otherwise didn't have any holes. He is their only guy, really, that can consistently create his own shot. You've seen, just like in the finals last year with Drew Holiday, there are specific defensive matchups that can really, really disrupt Chris Paul to the point where he's almost ineffective as a scorer and he becomes just a playmaker, kind of a la James Harden right now at this phase of his career, right? And so without Devin Booker, that specific hole is something that teams can absolutely attack. Now, this is where Chris Paul, the reason why I have them at number three and not lower is the intel that came out today that I saw was that Booker's out two to three weeks because the strain is considered to be mild. So the way I look at it, all Chris Paul has to do is keep this team alive for two to three weeks. If he can do that, if he can beat the Pelicans, even if they're down 2-0 in the next round, if they can just get to the point where Devin Booker comes back, then they're suddenly the best team in the league again. Obviously, there are still wrinkles there. There's no guarantee they can beat the Pelicans. I would pick the Suns still, but there's no guarantee that they can beat the Pelicans. Obviously, when Devin Booker comes back, there's no guarantee he'll be 100%. So that's why I have them down at three. I wouldn't write them off entirely, but I don't know that you could possibly consider them to be the favorites in the West anymore after that injury. Number two, I have Golden State. We talked about them in detail earlier, so I'm not going to go too much further into it. The gist of it is I'm specifically worried about them in specific matchups. Will they be able to handle the interior presence if a team like Philly comes out of the Eastern Conference or if they end up running into a Phoenix team that's healthy, will they have some issues there? So I have Golden State at number two. I still have Boston at number one. I talked about this last night. I was picking them for two reasons. One, Phoenix falling apart with their injury. But the key is they're the best defensive team that I have seen. Again, that's just me, guys. Like in 2004, I was 13 years old. So I don't have enough uh, experience watching the the Pistons to to understand whether or not that team was better. I didn't want. I didn't have enough live experience. I've seen film, but I didn't have enough live experience watching teams before. In my team, in my time watching basketball over the course of the last uh, a decade and a half or so, I this Boston Celtics team is the best defense I've ever seen. I've never ever seen a team that can cover as much ground and shrink space on stars the way that they can. They do not have a weakness that you can switch. Their best lineups do not have a defender that's easy to attack. 
One of the weird wrinkles of this series is Kevin Durant is not getting good looks in isolation defense against Tatum. There are a handful of possessions you'll see on the tape very rarely, but there were four or five possessions in that game where Tatum did have Durant in single coverage, and he's re- you can tell Durant's uncomfortable. He's crowding his space. He's applying physical pressure, and KD can still get two shots, but he's usually just going to his jab step pull up, and he's not making it right now, and that's a huge credit to Tatum. And so Boston, with their combination of being the best defense that I have seen in my time watching basketball, and Jalen Brown showing signs of confident scoring in the playoffs, and Jason Tatum embracing the double teams and making plays for his teammates, I think they are now the team that has the best chance to win the title, and I'm picking them at this point. Obviously, that could change significantly based on a couple of injuries or a couple of things changing. Obviously, Boston has has dealt with injuries with Robert Williams. There's no guarantee that they won't face something else, so this is kind of a sliding scale. But at this kind of snapshot moment in time, that's where I'm at. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support. We are taking the next two days off. I have gone six days in a row of this, and I'm completely exhausted. I need a little bit of a break. My wife's been out of town for a week, too, and I'm looking forward to spending some time with her tomorrow. But if anything absolutely crazy happens, I will try to get some sort of instant reaction material out. And no matter what, no matter how interesting things get over the next couple days, we will break it all down in its entirety on Sunday night after the last game of the night. As always, I sincerely appreciate you guys supporting the show and I'll see you in a couple of days.